0: This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. To download more lectures, learn more about our project, and to help support it, visit www.bayyina.com slash dream. That's B-A-Y-Y-I-N-A-H slash dream. You are free to share these recordings with family and friends. Thank you and Jazakumullah Khayrun for helping us make our dream a reality. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, wa salatu wa salamu ala sayyidil okay. anbiya wal mursaleen wa ala alihi wa sahbih. Wa man istanna bi ila ila din. Allahumma aj'alna minhum wa minaladheena amanu wa amilu salihat wa tawasawu bilhaq. وَتَوَاصُوا بِالصَّبْرِ أَمِينَ alamin Thumma alameen ثُمَّ أَمَا Assalamu السَّلَامُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَةُ اللَّهِ وَبَرَكَاتُهُ Today we are uh, really continuing the discussion we had last week about Surah Al-Teen and going right into Surah Al-Alaq and the two have a very deep relationship with each other, these two Surahs Last week we talked about the two essential components within the human being the, uh, the animal side of the human being and the soul that Allah Azza wa Jal blessed the human being with and the higher purpose that Allah Azza wa Jal gave the human being in that surah, Allah actually uh, honored and aggrandized and actually highlighted the higher purpose of the human being with the words, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي أَحْسَنِ تَقْوِيمٍ But in this surah, we'll see the other side. What happens when the human being, really, it's almost, a lot of this surah is a tafsir of the ayah uh, where we read, ثُمَّ رَدَدْنَاهُ اسْفَلَ سَافِلِينَ We'll see the flip side of that human being in this surah from the ayat, إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَيَطْغَى الرَّأَهُ استَغْنَى And the, the ayat will go on, Talking about the rebellion of the human being and how he thinks he doesn't need anyone else. He's free in and of himself. So we'll see that the relationship between those two insha'Allah ta'ala. There, let's start just making a small list of uh, interesting parallels between Surah at and Surah Al-Alaq and then we'll move forward. In the previous surah once again, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي أَحْسَنِ تَقْوِيمٍ we, we talked about how that's alluding to the ruh. That there's the animal, the body of the human being which is a remarkable creation but really what gave it what gave the human being honor is the ruh that Allah blew into it. And when Allah blew the ruh into the human being's body, then He commanded the angels, وَنَفَخْتُ min الرُّهِ فَقَعُوا لَهُ سَاجِدِينَ Right? First He fashioned him, ف... uh, سَوَيْتُهُ Then نَفَخْتُ min الرُّهِ Then I blew into him of, my, of the ruh that I created. Then fall into sajda. So the honor was really the ruh that Allah had put inside the human being. In this surah, Allah says, خَلَقَ, ال... خلق الْإِنسَانَ مِنْ عَلَقٍ So here, خَلَقْنَ الْإِنسَانَ فِي أَحْسَنِ التَقْوِيمِ Here, insana min alaq. and alaq is really a clot of blood. More literally, it means something—a a, a piece of uh, wet fluid, sticky fluid that sticks to something and hangs off of something, like mu'allaka, that which is hanging off. Okay, and that term is actually even used in uh, in the context of marriage, where you're—you know—you're you, married to her, you're married to your wife, but you're not really taking care of her at all, so she's left hanging. She's stuck to you, but she's not really associated with you. So, kal That you're leaving her like she's basically clinging but not really associated with you much anymore. Anyhow, there's an interesting transition from the first person to the third person. There Allah said, insan." We created the human being. Here He says, insana min alaq." The third person, He created the human being. So there's a difference between we created and He created. And the difference is, from a rhetorical point of view, the first person is close. And the third person is... When you say we, the person's here. When you say he, he's not here, he's far away. This is actually Allah distancing himself from this human being. And as we go further, we will see why. First of all, the lowly dimension of the human being, his humble beginnings have been highlighted. So Allah is distancing himself. He brings himself when you live up to the standards He created you for, the high expectations He has of you, fi ahsani taqweem, He brought Himself closer. But now, especially if you look at the, the tone of the surah, most of the surah is very negative, except for the little bit of the beginning. Most of the surah is very, very negative, and the, the attitude of the rebellious. So Allah Azza wa Jalla takes a more stern uh, person, the third person, in regards to that. In the beginning here, Allah Azza wa says, "Iqra wa Rabbuka al-Akram," very famous ayat, right? Recite, and your Lord is the most gracious, the most noble. So here he highlights his nobility in the previous surah he highlighted the nobility of the of the greatest prophets the ulul azm watin wa zaytun wa wa amin it was alluding to the nobility of the pre- the greatest prophets and here allah himself his he's the most noble so it's not just Kareem, wa al karim which occurs in other places in the quran is wa الْأَكْرَمِ the most noble the most noble of all then here allah azza wa Jal he tells us he created the human being in the best possible fashion, and then he gives us some clue as to what made us so honorable, what made us so noble. Like in a hadith we find that is narrated under the definition of aql by Imam Rahib al-Asfahani. He, writes, he cites a couple of a hadith. And one of the very interesting hadith under that is, ما خلق الله خلقا أكرم عليه من العقل. Allah did not create any creation more noble than the intellect. Meaning what, one of the things that makes the human being so noble is, that Allah gifted him with this remarkable intellect. And Allah highlights the use of that intellect in this surah. He says, Allam bil-qalam," right? And then he says, عَلَّمَ الْإِنسَانَ مَا لَمْ يَعْلَمِ So he taught the human being with the pen, he taught him what he didn't know. And being taught and you learning yourself, and being involved with the pen, these are all things, these are activities of the intellect. So on the, in the previous surah, you're created in the best possible fashion. And in this surah, what makes you the best? One of the things that make you the best is your ability to learn. Is your ability to learn, subhanAllah. Then, in the previous surah, like I mentioned earlier on, ثُمَّ رَدَدْنَاهُ أَسْفَلَ We reduced him to the lowest of the possible low. We rejected him, therefore he became the lowest of the low. But in this surah, Allah Azza wa Jal tells us, what, how did he get there? How did he get to be the lowest of the low? There it was just mentioned, but now we get to the how. Kal la Inna ilā Rabbi karrujah. This is the end, the psyche of the person who re- who became lowest of the low. Why he rebels? What what is Tohian anyway? And what is this general attitude of the human being? We'll talk about that. So it's really an explanation of that's the the statement in the previous surah. Then towards the end of the previous surah, we found this very strong rhetorical question by Allah: "Fama يُكَذِّبُكَ ba'du بِالدِّينَ What what kind of person would lie against you after all of these evidences?" in regards to the religion. What kind of wretched person must it be that would lie against you? And half of this surah almost is dedicated to exactly that kind of wretched person, to Abu Jahl. So that was the general question. What kind of person could that be that would lie against the religion? And here we're gonna see, الَّذِي عَبْدًا إِذَا صَلَّى إِن كَانَ Those ayat are pretty much unanimously understood to be referring to Abu Jahl. So first the question was raised, what kind of person would that be? And now this surah will answer, that's the kind of person. So we'll do a little bit of a psychological analysis of Abu Jahl, and what led him to be the kind of vic- the wicked enemy of Islam that he was. Then finally, uh, just a couple more actually. Allah Azza wa Jalla says, أَلَيْسَ اللَّهُ بِأَحْكَمِ الْحَاكِمِينَ And that was the last discussion we had last week, about the word hakim and أَحْكَم, how they mean two things. They can be rooted in two things. One, it has to do with wisdom, and the other has to do with being a judge and having the power to make past judgments over someone both both of those become relevant in this surah on the one hand allah passes you know how a judge when he when the guilty party the case is made and they're found guilty then the judge orders a punishment so in this surah as a judge allah orders a punishment kalla la ilam yantahi bin right that's one on the one hand this is the judgment of allah and we'll talk i'll talk, tell you about the meanings of that being grabbed by the forehead he's going to be dragged and then you're being told this is what made you guilty it's why are you being dragged by your forehead it's your, you know, this forelock, this front part of your hair you know, this is the punishment described we'll talk about why Allah Azza wa uses that precise language when He passes that judgment the other th- meaning of ahkam and hakimeen was wisdom the owner of all wisdom, the wisest of all the wise and it's only becoming that Allah Azza reveals some of that wisdom uh, and, a, and a sample of that wisdom to the human being which is the Qur'an the Qur'an is a manifestation of Allah's wisdom so in the very beginning of this surah is a manifestation of Allah's wisdom he commands the human being beginning with the messenger himself iqra' bismi ربك allathee خلق recite, read read what? by ijma' again, read Qur'an read the hikmah, the wisdom that Allah has sent to you which is the, the book of Allah itself subhanAllah then another very interesting rhetorical parallel in the previous surah we saw the mention of Iman and Amil الصالحات, right? We saw إِلَّا الَّذِينَ أَمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصالحاتِ فَلَهُمْ أَجْرٌ غَيْرُ مَمْنُونَ So that was, there was a natural sequence between Iman and Amal الصالحات. But there's actually a reverse sequence too. You know, of course, Iman comes first. When you have Iman, you do good deeds. But when you do good deeds, guess what happens? Your Iman increases. So it's, yes, Iman comes first, actions come second. But good deeds in and of themselves also end up increasing your iman. The stronger your iman, the better your deeds get. So it's this cycle. Right? It's this cycle. Now, the, the first part of that cycle was in the previous surah. And that was, إِلَّا الَّذِينَ أَمَنُوا وَأَعْمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ In this surah, Allah Azza wa Jalla says, Wasjud the ayah we made sajda on. Wasjud, waqtarib. Make sajda, which is a good deed. It's an action. It's a deed. But waqtarib, Become closer. Getting closer to Allah is not a deed. What is that? It's a state of Iman. It's a state of Iman. So really the state of Iman is mentioned second, and the action is mentioned first. Converse of the previous, the opposite sequence in the previous surah, Iman first, and uh, uh, Deeds second. The other, just generally you've already probably noticed, the previous surah mentioned things in general, and this surah is giving specific examples. It's getting specific. Previous surah alluded to the messengers generally wa zaitoon wa wa Generally, specifically in this surah, which messenger? Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It's very specific to him. Iqra bismi Rabbi khalak. It starts with that. Generally, in the previous surah, the human being was created in the best possible fashion. Here, more specific, what makes him the best possible creation? Generally, in the previous surah, we reduced him to the lowest of the low. Here, what led him specifically to be the lowest of the low? Generally, in the previous surah, what kind of person would reject you? What kind of person would be a kafir against you, lie against you in regards to the deen? And in this surah, specifically Abu Jahl. So it's going from general to specific. من العام إلى الخاص. That's what's happening in this uh, profound surah. Here, inshallah ta'ala, in the the, the first introductory comments of the surah in and of itself, beyond the comparison between itself and the previous surah, we have to make a couple of uh, important comments. And one of them is that this messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam came after what you could really in our own way you could call a long dark age. The last messenger that had come before him was Isa alaihi Sallam. And between him and the coming of uh, and the de- declaration of Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu as a messenger which is in the Christian year count it's 610, that's when he declared to be a messenger. It's about a 500 some year gap. Almost 600 years of a gap in which there has been no messengers. Human, humanity has been in complete darkness. Humanity has been in complete darkness. And now, finally, there's light. Now, finally, the sun has risen again. And this is the ultimate revelation that is about to be revealed. So this, the surah we're about to read, the reason I bring this up, is because of most mufassirun, they say this is the first surah, and the first five ayat, are the first revelation of all revelations, to have been revealed. Even though that's not entirely unanimous. There are some mufassirun who say, Surah al Muddathir was the first revelation. Others who say Suratul Fatiha was the first revelation. But there's a way to reconcile all of those and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later on inshaAllah. But generally most Mufassirun you will find agreeing that the ayat that we're reading today, the first five ayat at least, five, six ayat, those are the original first revelation given to Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa In regards to that, the question arises, how did revelation begin? How did this process begin for the messenger himself sallallahu there's a very long narration in sahihain it's Muttafaqun narrated by aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha in which he was asked sallallahu alaihi wasallam that you know how was it how did revelation begin how did it start coming to you ya rasulullah so he responded uh, and and she's paraphrasing really and she says in awwala rasulullah sallallahu wasallam min الرؤية الصادقة في What that means is He would start seeing true dreams early on The Messenger عليه الصلاة Would start seeing things And then the next day or the next week Or a couple of days later Those would come true As true as the rising of the morning That's the expression in Arabic Meaning it's exactly as he saw it As sure as it is that the sun rose That morning As sure as it was that his dream That he had seen a few days ago came true. And this is now the beginning, it's, it's almost like the Messenger عليه الصلاة والسلام, is being oriented for revelation. This is before the angel and before the event in the cave and all of that. This is earlier on. And then, ثُمَّ حَبَّبَ إِلَيْهِ الْخَلَاءُ Then solitude became beloved to him. He didn't like being among people anymore. He wasn't much conversation. He liked being by himself and being in solitude and, and reflecting. فَكَانَا يَخْلُو بِغَارِ حِرَاءٍ Then he used to be alone by himself in the cave of Hِرَاءِ يَتَحَنَّثُ فِيهِ الْلَيَالِي ذَوَاتُ الْعَدَدِ He used to spend many, many nights in it. يَتَحَنَّثُ is an interesting word. تَحَنَّثَ in Arabic means to ward sins off of yourself, to wash it off of yourself. So it's an interesting choice of word for Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم. It's like he wanted to wash off the influences of the evil society. He wanted to not think about all of those things, remove them from himself when he was by himself thinking. Now, a lot of, uh, especially writers of seerah, have have kind of grappled with the issue of what was he thinking about. What is it that the Messenger ﷺ was reflecting upon? And there are a number of answers. And some of them have to do with the general questions, who created me, what is the purpose of my life, etc., etc., the larger questions of life. And essentially the questions that all human beings should seek the answers of. That's one line of reasoning that some historians and writers of seerah have presented. But others have presented a very interesting addition to that that I'd like to share with you. The Messenger alayhi salatu before revelation came, he was already a humanitarian. He was what you could call a human rights activist. Okay, even before revelation was given to him, sallallahu alayhi wasalam. So you know when he, you know, you guys know the story. You've heard it many times. When he, sallallahu alaihi was given revelation, he was terrified when he was commanded to read. He came down. He came to Khadija, ta'ala anha, He said, "I'm scared for my life. I fear for my life." And she said, "No, you have nothing to be worried about." And then she gave a whole speech of why you have nothing to be worried about. You're so charitable. You take care of those who are oppressed. You take care of the needy. You look after the orphan. She gave all these humanitarian reasons for why. Why would you be in any trouble? Allah Azza wa will take care of you, right? So this idea of him being concerned with the needs of humanity was, or he was very deeply concerned with the needs of humanity. But to help you understand the point that the historians make, I'll give you a parallel. In our times, you have charity organizations, right? They're organizations that are trying to feed the hungry, help the homeless, things like that. And all of these organizations, at the end of the year, they have something you could call a progress report. right? Last year we fed 100 people, but this year we fed 500 people. Last year we helped 1,000 kids, this year we helped 5,000 kids, whatever it may be. So they have to show that they made progress. Right? It's better than it was last year. But compare that to how many peop- how many more people needed food, or how many more children needed help. They're helping more children. But hunger, it's, they're, so they're helping the hungry, but hunger itself is increasing exponentially. So they were able to help five, five times better than themselves, that they did last year. But the problem, problem increased 20 times, 30 times. They're helping, but the problem seems, seems to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And a lot of times, these kinds of people, they fall into serious depression, because they feel like whatever we do... It's just never ending, man. We try to help in one cause, another comes up. We help with one conflict, another conflict arises. There's one group of people that need help. You've barely started helping them. Another group of people is being oppressed, and they need help. And it seems like this endless world of chaos, right? And so, and this, for a humanitarian, when they work like this, you know what happens? They lose all hope. They lose all hope. They just think of the human being, like we said last week, the lowest of the low. This human being is so hopeless. Humanity is so hopeless. How evil and corrupt they are, right? This is on the one hand Now the Messenger ﷺ even joined a human rights Or human, uh, 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 what do you call, relief organization Called Halful Fudul. This is even before he was a Messenger wasallam. And the same problem He's helping those who need help He's helping the oppressed He's helping the one chained into slavery, etc, etc But slavery itself is getting worse He's helping the oppressed But oppression is getting worse He's helping the needy, but the the, the the number of people in need keeps going up and up and up. It's a frustrating humanitarian problem. It's always been there. So you know, when a, a person of high intellect like the messenger was sallallahu alaihi wasallam, they realize if I am patching up the holes in this boat, every time I pa- patch up one hole, another leak is there. I patch up that one, two other leaks come up. I patch up three, twenty-five come up. How do I fix the boat altogether? I've been helping the hungry, how do I kill hunger itself? Right? I've been, I've been helping the oppressed, how do I destroy oppression itself? How do I get rid of the source problem itself? So on the one hand, there is the larger purpose of your own life. But on the other is the solution for humanity. What is the solution for humanity? What is a human, what, are, what are human beings missing? Why are we in this rut the way we are? And you know the answer for that is something that philosophers, political scientists, sociologists, intellectuals have grappled with that for many, 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 many centuries. To this day we're grappling with how do we deal with this, right? How do we deal with crime in society? Even to this day the, pro- the, the solution that we've come up with for dealing with crime, like you know, the United States you know, with all pride and res- you know uh, respect is one of the most advanced, if not the most advanced society in the world today. We have infrastructure and all of these things and advanced governance and all of that, right? But at the same time, some of the most heinous, unthinkable kinds of crimes happen here. Some of the most disgusting, inhumane, you would never imagine of a crime like that in older times. Those kinds of weird, strange, just despicable things, they happen here. Why? Why would... human beings have all this advancement, why are they becoming less human? Right? Why are they becoming like that? This is a problem to think, and how do you solve that problem? And the solution in our modern society is a few things. Why don't we open up, you know, these uh, hotlines, right? These these help hotlines. And why don't we open up correctional facilities, right? This is the and maybe that'll help. But we know that that's not helping. We know that's not really a solution. And the problem's gotten worse over the years. Anyhow, it is uh, uh, according to again some writers of Sirah, it is this problem. There are two thirsts, right? Who is my Creator, and how do I solve? humanity's problems two problems one addressed towards the creator the other addressed towards humanity allah azza wa jalla solved both problems for the messenger sallallahu when he gave him quran he solved both problems for them he gave him a solution for humanity and he gave him a solution for how to be connected to your master subhanallah and this is actually no surprise you know in arabic there's an expression i'll translate it for you the truth a true compliment is the one that comes from the enemy Right? If, if your friend is complimenting you, it's not a surprise. But if your enemy says something good about you, now there's something real, there's a real way to that. So if for example a Muslim says something good about the messenger, والسلام, that is to be expected. We have a, a love bias. We, we are passionately in love with our messenger. But when non-Muslims speak highly of the messenger, even though they don't mostly, but when they do, in and of itself that's a huge merit. Because now the one who doesn't even believe is acknowledging something. And you've heard this many times before, Michael Hart and his most influential people in history. He rates the messenger, Ali as number one. But I want to highlight one thing he said. He, you know, he gave a rationale for why he lists him as number one. And I want to quote this for you, just so you understand it in the context of our discussion. He says he was supremely successful in both religious and secular fields. He's the only figure in human history that was supremely successful in both religious and secular secular field. So in the realm of spirituality and being in worship of Allah Azzawajal, no one is found to be as successful. At the same time in the realm of governance, social justice, equality for human beings, establishment of a just society and the social order, there's no other example that combined these two things like the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's an unprecedented example in history Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Anyhow, so now uh, we want to move forward and I want to share with you the difference between a philosopher and an intellectual and a messenger. This is an important discussion for us to have nowadays. Okay? It's an important discussion for us to have nowadays. Philosophers are really smart people. Intellectuals are really smart people. But messengers are also really smart people. Philosophers claim to have solutions for humanity. They claim that they have a philosophy, an idea, an ideology that's going to help humanity. For example, democracy or capitalism or whatever, maybe these are philosophies presented by a philosopher, be it Karl Marx or be it you know uh, Adam Adam Smith or whoever, they're, they're philosophers, they presented a philosophy. And messengers also bring a solution. But there, but there are some differences, right? The first difference is philosophers say, I came up with this from my own head. I thought of this, I figured this out. This is my idea. But the messenger never, ever, ever says this is mine. Whatever I am presenting to you is not mine, it is from Allah Azza wa I'm not even reading it on to you. Look at the first words of the surah. اِقْرَعَ read. 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 When you read something, it's not yours, it's somebody else's. Right? So the messenger, he brings solutions for humanity too. But not solutions of his own, solutions that come from a higher source. Right? That's, that's the first difference. The other thing with the philosopher is there's this arrogance. Right? They're, they have the better thing and everybody else is inferior. They're, they're really trying to promote themselves. The messengers are the greatest examples of humility. They are humble before Allah Azza wa And we find this, we're gonna study this in this uh, uh, profound surah also inshallah ta'ala. So let's read, as a, just to fulfill that, that tradition, the, the, the intellect of the human being, Ismail Shahid rahimahullah gave a beautiful explanation of human intellect, human thought, he divided it into three parts. It's very interesting that he did that. And inshallah, it will help you understand this topic that we're coming to. He said the first intellect is uh, uh, ilm -ilm al-hawas. He said it's knowledge of the senses, meaning, you know, fire is hot, or this table is hard, or it's tough, or the carpet is soft. Touch, seeing, smelling, five senses. Data that goes into you from the five senses. This is the first kind of knowledge. This is what all human beings have. Beyond that is ilm al-aql, meaning inferred knowledge. In other words, you know when you see a fire, you know it's hot, right? You, you touch it, it's hot, fine. But if you see smoke far away, you don't even see the fire, all you see is smoke, can you still tell there must be a fire? You can, right? You can infer. You don't have to actually see, you can make conclusions without even seeing. You can compute, you can calculate without actually having to touch and smell and see. Now an animal may not have that kind of inference, but we do. We are a little more advanced. Or uh, profoundly more advanced In our ability to infer These are two kinds of intellect now Right, by the senses And by inference You infer knowledge But then he adds a third And this is al Qalb, He says It's the knowledge of the heart Meaning Allah gave us some knowledge Before we even developed our senses Allah put some knowledge inside of us When we were in the bellies of our mothers And that knowledge was in the ruh, Right And the resting place According to most of The Ruh in our body Is the heart itself so this ruh was blown into us And it has a certain knowledge too It has a higher knowledge actually And you know in different societies They don't exactly use the terms we use But they use interesting alternative terminology They'll say something like intuition right? They'll say sixth sense right? they'll, say, they'll use these kinds of terms to talk about a, a kind of knowledge that they can't really put their finger on But they know it's there they know it's there right and that's really this higher sense of morality and higher sense of awareness that allah azza put inside the human being now that knowledge that you know that that soul there are two kinds of that knowledge of the heart that's knowledge that allah put inside of us sometimes allah you know that's the kind of knowledge you get from istikhara your heart feels like you should do it your heart feels like you shouldn't do it etc etc it could be a true dream that's also from allah azza wa this is from ulum al that's not something you computed that's not something you touched and felt. It's something beyond. It's another kind of knowledge. Right? A true dream is another kind of knowledge. But then, from that from that knowledge of the heart is also revelation. The Qur'an is also that kind of knowledge. And that came on the heart of the Messenger wasallam. The philosophers don't have that. You know what they have? They have knowledge of the intellect. But they don't have knowledge of the heart. So when Allah talked about the revelation of Qur'an, He said, عَلَىٰ قَلْبِكَ لِتَكُونَ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ We sent it upon your heart, so you may be from those who have iman. So this Qur'an is something special, it's a higher brand of knowledge, and it combines both. It combines inferred knowledge, and it combines spiritual knowledge. Knowledge that could not be inferred, we could not have known about the angels, we could not have known about the Day of Judgment, the way we know about it, through the revelation. Now let's begin inshallah ta'ala, with a little bit of a discussion on the wording of the surah from the beginning. اِقْرَأْ Bismi رَبِّكَ الَّذِي This is one of the few surahs of the Qur'an that begin with a commandment. You know the narration, the Messenger ﷺ is by himself in the cave of Hira. He sees this incredible light, and it's Jibreel ﷺ. He grabs him, and he feels like he's going to be crushed. And he's commanded, اِقْرَأْ And he responds, مَا أَنَا بقارئ. I can't read. I don't know how to read. I am not one to read at all. Then he... He releases him, grabs him again, and says, "Iqra." And again, he responds, "I'm not, I'm not capable of reading." And then the third time, and there are two narrations of this. One of them is he said, "You know, the Messenger or Jibril alaihissalam recited the first few ayat." In another narration, the Messenger says, "Famada أَقْرَأَ what should I read?" What should, so he finally, you know, he gave in. He came in, and said, "What should I read?" And then the Messenger and the Messenger Jibril salam recited these ayat اقرأ باسم ربك الذي خلق خلق الإنسان من علق Profound first revelation of Quran And the, when this revelation was given As I told you already The messenger was horrified He was terrified And he in another narration says uh, It was as though it was written on my heart I felt as though the revelation that was given Was written on my heart So anyway he rushes back he asks that, that a blanket be put over him. He fears for his life. And all of this you know, th- this, uh, the narration goes forward. But now let's look at the language itself. What did Allah choose to say to his messenger? What were the first words chosen? To be th- this Qur'an that we have in our possession, how was it introduced to human beings? This is the introduction of Qur'an to human beings. Iqra, number one, read. The first commandment in the Qur'an. The first message given to humanity, read. Read. But reading alone, you know reading has always been part of every intellectual civilization, right? But who is this messenger? al-Umi? He doesn't even read This command was not given to a society full of libraries and universities A society that has a history of books and authors Nothing Even the, their literature is poetry And even their poetry is barely written, it's just memorized there's not even you go to the library and find Arabic poetry It's written in the Islamic era It wasn't even written much before then Subhanallah And in this society Allah Azzawajal gives the commandment of reading Not only is the messenger himself ummi, The vast majority of people in that society were not read They were not read And this is part of the miracle of the Quran In response to that command The Muslims became the most educated civilization in history the, the mass education, the way it spread in the Muslim Ummah is unlike any other. We developed the modern university system as it exists. The PhD system in the Western world, if you trace its history, it came from the Ijazah system in Islam. So higher academics and reading and research, as we know it today, is actually rooted in Islamic civilization, subhanAllah. These people that didn't even read themselves, became the world leaders in reading. And this book that Allah gave, not even in the form of a book. You know, Quran was not revealed as a book it was revealed in the form of just words, oral tradition. This orally related book became the mother of more books than any other in history. This one Quran is one book, but it gave birth to entire libraries across continents. So many tafal, every book of fiqh, every book of aqidah, every book of history, every in Islamic history, every book of tafsir, how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people Generation after generation after generation, have written and read and written and read, all coming from what source book? From Qur'an, subhanAllah. It's just one little word, and how it changed the world. How it changed the entire world around. It's a, a, you know, this this magnificent concept. Here's another reason why this is so revolutionary. You know the Christian tradition? The, uh, very soon after the corruption of the Christian tradition... One of the ways in which society was kept in check was... Average people were not allowed to read the Bible. You're not allowed to read the Bible. Only the Pope, only those who have authority, they can read the Bible. They can interpret the Bible for it. You can't read it. You can't read it. And you know the Protestant movement in Christianity? That was a result of this, this policy. We can read it for ourselves. The Catholic doesn't read the Bible for himself. They don't have Bible study. Protestants do. They have that, Right? So, at the time of this revelation, the idea of the average person reading revelation themselves is unheard of. You want to connect directly to God yourself? You want to read it yourself? That's unheard of. And why is it that they disconnected people from the religious texts? Why is that? You see, it's like they made religious knowledge classified information. Right, that's the idea. They took religious knowledge and they made it classified information. What's the benefit of doing that? Now you interpret it the way you want. Since nobody else has that knowledge, they can't question you. They can't say, where did you get this from? What's your evidence? I've read it too, it's not there. They can't do that. So now all the religious authority is in your hand. Anybody who questions you, it's like they're questioning God Himself, you're questioning the Bible, you're questioning the religious text. But nobody can actually go to the religious text themselves, because it's been classified. We became from the very beginning a culture, a, a civilization of just reading, openly reading, subhanAllah. We took that middle man away, Every single, you know, in, in modern times they say religion is a means to oppress people, right? Religious societies oppress people in the name of religion. Why did that happen? Because there was always this idea of a clergy. There's a class of people in the Hindu tradition. They have the pundits. In the Christian tradition, they had the Pope and the and the, the you know the the Vatican had its own hierarchy. In every major religious tradition, even the Fara'ina, you know, the Pharaoh, they believe the belief was they are descendants of the gods. They have the. Allah, the permission to interpret the religion, nobody else can go to their religion. But the idea of there's God, there's the people, and then there's the official authority in between. Right? And this was a means of controlling the people. This clergy, if you will. Right? Islam uh, came, and the only people in between you and Allah are the humble messengers that are asking you to read for yourselves, Subhanallah. It changed that entire structure of corrupt religion. It changed that entire model. Subhanallah. Anyhow. So, iqra. bismi رَبِّكِ it's not just reading; it's reading. Now, this Bismillah has been interpreted in the, in a number of ways. Let's go through it one by one. Read. One way it's been understood is Ma'furul bihi Daba is Zaid. What that means is read the name of your Lord or your master. Read the name of your master. So you know, recite Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim and recite the name of your master. That's one interpretation. That's probably the weakest one because Daba should not be considered mahdud. Uh, uh, Another interpretation is إقرأ ما إِلَيْكَ مِنَ رَبِّكَ In other words, read what has been revealed to you from your master. So once this command was given, from then, خير, from then until the passing of the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he was continuously, his entire life, answering this one command. Allah said, read in the beginning of his career, and for those next twenty-three years, what's he doing? He's reading. He's just responding to that first command that Allah Azza wa Jalla had given him of reciting the Qur'an and the revelation that had come to him. The word Ba can also be used for support and help and assistance. So it's read with the help of your Lord. Read with the support of your Lord. Read in the name of your Lord. Read in the name of your Master. This is another meaning of اقرأ Bismi ربك الَّذِي خَلَقُ The other thing would be اقرأ Bismi is when you recite you let the people know who it's from. So you know, in the in, when you recite the Quran and you recite it in Allah's name, you say Bismillah rahman al-Rahim. When you say Bismillah and then you recite Quran, every time the Messenger would do that, he would let the people know: This is not my word. I am reading it in the name of the one who gave it to me. This isn't my own. So this was a way of saying: When you're rejecting this word, don't think you are rejecting me. They're not. They're not rejecting me. You're rejecting the ayat of Allah. So that message would become very clear to people every time he would recite. He would recite in the name of Allah, not in his own name. These aren't my words. These are the words of Allah Azza wa Jalla Himself. So إقرأ بسمِ ربكِ الذي خلق. Additionally, Ibn Taymiyah رحمه الله, I'm going to quote him directly. Al-Shinqiti رحمه الله also quotes him in his Tafsir Abu al He says تؤكد لِهَذَا الْإِشْعَارِ أَيْ لَيْسَ مِنْ عِنْدِكَ وَلَا مِنْ عِنْدِ جِبْرِيلِ الَّذِي يُقْرِئُكَ that every time you say Bismillah Rahman Rahim or you recite in the name of your master, it is to uh, to highlight the fact and to make the fact very, very clear that what you are saying isn't from you, nor is it on behalf of Jibreel who gives it to you to read, it's actually from Allah Himself. It's from Allah Himself. Both of you both of you are a vehicle by which the word of Allah is being delivered. Even Jibreel alayhi salam, it's not his word. It's just being delivered through him, subhanallah. Then Allah Azza this is part of the miracle too. You know, because the, the miracle was supposed to be And this is very subtle and important to understand Allah Azza wa Jalla revealed to us Qur'an But the Qur'an, if you want to put it simply Has a three-step journey We have to remember the Qur'an has a three-step journey The first stage of the Qur'an is in لَوْخٌ maḥfūẓ. It's written as a book The second stage is It came to the Messenger in the form of words So now it's no longer a book Now it's just speech So it came from writing into speech and then the third part allah already knew subhanahu wa ta'ala that it will again take the form of what a book right so it's three parts it started as a book then in the middle when it was being delivered it was speech and then it was again formulated as a book right and now we have it as a book now we have it as a book but when the when it was being revealed it was revealed in the form of what not as a book but as speech this is important to note why because there's a fundamental difference between speech and a a, a written document. A book and a speech are two very different things. The way I speak is not the way I write. They're not the same. They're very, very different. Actually, I've been speaking to you for a good half hour already, or even more, I've been making a lot of grammatical mistakes as I speak, and that's okay, because in speech you do that a lot. But if I was writing an article, I would probably go back and change my sentences and fix it up, and get rid of the repetitions and all of that. I would go through an editorial process. In speech, there is no editorial process In writing, there's an editorial process You go and you fix yourself You correct what you said that's incorrect You go, come up with a first draft, a second draft, a third draft Every time you see a published book You'll probably see first edition, second edition, third edition And if it's the only edition, you'll have acknowledgments I'd like to thank all the people who helped me edit this book right? Because it's a, a book, by definition, goes through this editorial process But speech doesn't now, which, is, which also means, practically, speech is more prone to mistakes. Because in speech, you have one chance, that's it. Once you said it, you said it. It's out, it's out. You could later say, I made a mistake, but you can't take your words back, they already left. At least with writing, you wrote it, uh, it didn't come out good, you could cross it out, nowadays you could delete it, whatever, right? So the messenger is given this Qur'an in the form of speech. In the form of speech. But Allah, from the very beginning, even let him know this isn't actually speech. This is actually a book. Because what's the first word? Iqra, read. You don't read speech. What do you read? A book, right? So even the Messenger already knows from the beginning, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he's supposed to let the people know. Yes, I'm giving it to you as speech, but in its origin, what is it? It's a book. It's something. It's and so how can a speech be like a book, right? Speech will have mistakes. Now let's see, this is what baffled the Arabs. How is he speaking so perfectly as though it's coming written from a book? And even those who disbelieved came up with different theories. And one of the theories was, he's getting it written down by somebody. <laughs> that was one of the theories. Because it's too perfect to be speech. This was part of the miracle. And how could he have access to a book? If it is a book, how could he have access to the book? Look at the Quran raising this question. You were not reading any books before this. You didn't even know how to read. not a You didn't write it with your own hand. Why not? You don't know how to write. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. How could that be? Then he says, الذي في الأميين رسولا He is sent among the unlettered, the people who don't read. He sent among them. Ummi comes from um, You know, mother. So you are as illiterate or as unable to write as you were when you came out of your mother. That's the idea behind the word ummi right you're just as na- you know un- unaware of writing or s- or reading as you were when you came out of your mother so among these uh, you know unlettered people he sent a messenger from among them meaning he was ummi also which is why quran says an al-ummi the the unlettered prophet who's written, who, who they find written about among themselves so ta'ala alam bismi huwa min rabbi. This is the first, Ibn, Qaymi, Ibn Taymiyyah says this. He says, what you are reading, every time you say Bismillah, you should be aware that this is actually from your master. nas That you deliver it to the people in the name of your Lord. Meaning, you never, you never think you're doing this because you should, or you want to, it's always for the sake of Allah that you are delivering this word. وَأَنْتَ مُبَلِّغٌ عِنْدَ رَبِّكَ عَلَىٰ حَدِّ قَوْلِهِ And you are the means of delivering it, as far as your Lord is concerned, as His word himself says, itself says, وَمَا يَنْطِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَىٰ He doesn't speak on His own empty desire, on behalf of His own desire. إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْيٌ يُوحَىٰ It is nothing but revelation that has been inspired to Him. Now, in this, uh, one more interesting, interesting issue, Allah Azza wa Jal says, اِقْرَأْ الذي خلق. So it is not just reading the name of your Lord or your master, but there's something more. The one who created, al Rab al-Rabbik, al-Ladhi Your master who created. What's the relationship between the master and creating? As we read, وصف الرّب الذي خلق مع إطلاق الوصف. و ذلك لأن صفة الخلق هي أقرب الصفات إلى معنى الروبوبيا. This is روح Maani uh, Imam Al-Dosari رحمه wrote this. And he says, Allah attributed his rububiyyah, his mastery, his lordship, with his act of creating, because of his acts, this is the one that establishes his lordship more than anything else. I made it, I have full rights over it. I made this. When you carve out old times, you carve out a knife, it's mine, I made this. I have full rights, if I break it, it's my problem. If I fix it, it's my problem. You wrote an essay, it's your, it's your creation. You edit it, you erase it, you add to it, you take away from it, that's yours. It's entirely yours. You have full rights over what you made. You know, nowadays in modern terms we say copyright, manufacturer's rights, right? So the fact that Allah says, read in the name of your master who created, the word created illustrating that he has full rights over you. And you should comply and read because he, he, no one has more rights over you than he because he's the one who created you. So there's a, there's a reciprocal relationship between rububiya and al-khalq. Similarly, well, really this occurs in different places in the Qur'an. Like Allah says, وَلَا إِنْ سَأَلْتَهُ مَنْ خَلَقَ السَّمَوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ لَيَقُولُنَّ اللَّهِ And you know, in a more interesting place in Zuhruf he says, ذَلِكُمُ اللَّهُ رَبُّكُمْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا هُوَ kulli كُلِّ That is Allah, your Rabb, the creator of everything. Rabb, creator, Rabb, creator. Who is the Lord of everything? Allah Azza wa Jalla. Who created everything? Allah Azza wa Jalla. So this idea of Allah being the master and the Creator are combined in this ayah. The idea behind it is very, it's very powerful. When the Messenger is to deliver the message, people will call him insane. And the bullies will think he's powerless. He has no power. What are you going to tell me? You're going to tell me I should leave my religion? Who are you? Who do you think you are? You're an orphan, right? The idea that you know when you have power in society, you can take a podium and speak. The Messenger wasallam, has virtually no political power at all. He's just an honest businessman. That's all. That's it. There's nothing more associated with him. Yes, he comes from a powerful family, but his own uncles are the biggest bullies against him. Right? They're, they're some of the worst enemies are his own family. So if your own family is against you, how are you going to get support anywhere else? Now in this sort of a situation, Allah gave him this powerful word, when you speak to people, speak in my name, not your own. The power, the power in your words will not come from your mouth, it will come from Allah Azza wa Jalla. And when you clash against the ideas of the people, know that Allah is the one who created them too. الَّذِي خَلَقْ mutlaqan He didn't even add an object. The one who created. The question is, what did he create? There's no mention. He just said he created. What that implies is he created everything. There's no limit to what he created. That's When there's no limit to something, you don't even mention it. We do this in the Fatiha. We say, إِيَّا كَنَسْتَعِينَ We seek your help. When you ask somebody's help, you're supposed to specify what do you need help in. If I asked you for help, I said, please help me. You'd be looking at me like, well, what do you want? what do you need help in you have to specify but if you need help in everything there's no end to the list all you can say is yakana yeah, we only seek your help meaning in everything so he says he created he didn't specify what why created everything the next ayah goes on to specified Al insan he created everything and especially he created the human being min al'am ila al khas it's going from general to specific he created the human being min alaq the Arabic word, alaq, uh, is, is from a word, verb, aliqa, and also pronounced alaqa. It means to cling and to hang off. To cling and to hang off. By implication, people have uh, uh, interpreted it to mean a clot of blood. But really, for example, aliqas saidu saydu fil-ju'ala, the Arabic expression that the, the animal that you were trying to hunt, it got clung or it got caught inside the net. That's why aliqa is used, right? And it's used in the sense that the alaqah, the, the sperm of the male, when it goes inside, the, through the uterus and all of that, and finally it, the, it impregnates the mother, it's actually hanging off. mu'allaqa alaq. And this is something that's discussed in modern embryology, and at the time couldn't possibly have been known. Not at all. That this, It's not just a clot of blood as most translations say. Alaq literally means that which hangs off. And if you look at, you know, sonograms and things like that and modern embryology, the earliest stage of the formation of the baby, the confirmation that it's actually impregnation has happened, is the hanging, you know, Mu'allaqah, it's just, it's hanging off, literally alaq, subhanallah. So there's been a, a tremendous amount of work done on this particular word alone. There are other places in the Qur'an that talk about embryology, but this particular word is of key interest, because it, it alludes to Allah Azzawajal's profound knowledge, in the most secret of things. We don't even know what's inside of ourselves the way Allah does. And it's an indication of Allah's ayah. He says, سَنُرِيهِمْ آيَاتِنَا فِي wa وَفِي أَنفُسِهِمْ We will show them our miraculous signs in the horizons and even inside themselves. This is the miraculous sign inside of ourselves. حَتَّى يَتَبَيَّنَ لَهُمْ أَنَّهُ الْحَقِّ Until it becomes absolutely clear to them that that in fact is the truth. I want to highlight for you though, whenever Allah mentions the creation of the human being, the purpose is to highlight certain things. So I'm going to share with you three things. That is the purpose of highlighting. The human being was created from nutfah, salsal, teen Different words are used in different places in Quran. Okay, nutfatin, amshaji, nabtalihi, etc., etc. When this comes up in the Quran, and it comes up a lot, what is the intended lesson behind it? There are at least three lessons. The first lesson is resurrection. The one who created you from a you know a piece of fluid can recreate you. How difficult is that for him? If he can do that, if he can create you from a fluid, then he can create you out of the earth once again. It's not a big deal for him. So it's a reminder of Allah's power of resurrection. That's number one. The no- uh, number two thing is, this fluid seems like it's purposeless. And then it evolves into something that seems to have intricate design and it's balanced and ahsani taqweem. So in one surah it was pi ahsani taqweem, the other min alaq, right? And alaq seems to be this just piece of blood, clingy piece of flesh. But then this advanced human being with so many amazing features and, and intellect, how can these two things be parallel? The idea is you, you went from something that doesn't have much purpose or much function to something that has much higher function. And you know when things have more advanced function, the idea is they should do higher tasks. Right? Something that has low capability can only do less things. Something that has high capability should be able to do higher things. Right? So the fact that Allah created you with such amazing intricacy means you were created for a higher purpose. You were created so wonderfully; it must mean that you're able to do higher things. So it alludes to the higher purpose of the human being. Then finally, this uh, is actually a means by which Allah humbles the human being. Allah Azza wa Jalla humbles the human being. He created you from a fluid which you yourself consider dirty, right? So who do you think you are? Oh, you did this credential or that credential, or your business is going this well, or you have this asset or that asset, or people think of you as this, that, or the other, or you have this political power or that name or that fame. Who do you think you are? Your origin is this filth. Your origin is something you yourself find disgusting. So know your place. Allah Azza wa Jalla humbles the human being by mentioning his origin. And it's interesting that Allah Azza wa Jalla mentions this and then says, "Iqra wa rabbuka akram Recite again. Read again. We'll talk about why he says that again. But اِقْرَأْ وَرَبُّكَ الْأَقْرَبُ And your master is the most noble. First he tells us how we actually don't own any nobility ourselves. We come from alaqa We don't, own, we don't deserve any nobility. And if, Karam in Arabic is something that should be respected for what it is in and of itself. Original. We don't have anything in and of, oursel- in and of ourselves originally that alaq that should be respected. It is Allah who honors us. وَلَقَدْ كَرَمْنَا بَنِي أَدَمَ We don't have honor in and of ourselves. We don't have karama. That is Allah, Al-Akram, the most noble. So first he mentions our humility, and then he mentions his nobility. He compares the two, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then why does he say, إِقْرَى a second time? You see the message, you know when a student is scared, and the teacher says, do it, then he comes again, just do it, again. It's like encouragement the messenger ali is literally being patted on the back he's being you know encouraged read again read it's okay read and read and your master is most noble meaning your master doesn't mean to put hardship on you this is a karawa. this is a, this is an act of nobility from your master that he's making you read this is a gift from allah take it as a gift from allah azza jal. then and, and so he's ennobling you allah is ennobling you and the fact that this Al-Akram is used, inshallah ta'ala, probably we won't get to finish the surah today, but when we do, we'll talk about this. Is later on in the surah, you're gonna find the messenger in a situation, sallallahu alayhi wa where he was humiliated. He was humiliated by Abu Jahl. And at that time, it's important for him to remember why is he reading. He's reading because the most noble lord, the most noble master made him read. He gave him nobility. No matter how much they insult him, they will never be able to take away the nobility of the Messenger wasallam. He will go through difficult times. But these words will give him strength. اقرأ وربك الأكرم الَّذِي عَلَّمَ بِالْقَلَمُ The one who taught by means of the pen. And this has been interpreted in a number of ways. Firstly, the hadith in which the Messenger says صلى الله عليه وسلم, أول ما خَلَقَ اللَّهُ الْقَلَمُ فَقَالَ لَهُ أُكْتُبُ The first thing that Allah created was the pen, then He said to it, write. Meaning everything that has been that has been created is a manifestation of Allah's word that has been written. That's one implication of the word qalam. The other is in the in the sense of dunya, all knowledge that we have today is a result of something somebody wrote before us. And how did they get their knowledge? They read something that somebody wrote before them, and then somebody who wrote it before them. Oral knowledge dies out, but written knowledge passes on it passes on, it passes on, it passes on. So Allah will Allah taught by means of the pen. Now look. Two times Iqra' Iqra' in the beginning, Iqra' now. Then, Allama Allama al-insana bil-qalam Then, Allama again, Allama al-insana ma Two times read, two times he taught. So the whole theme in the beginning is learning and teaching and learning and teaching. That's the ultimate theme. And then on top of that, reading compared with the pen. So there's two activities in education, right? Reading and writing. Both of them are covered. Iqra' and then Qalam. Both, both dimensions of learning are covered. And so one is when you benefit from the knowledge yourself, that is iqra when you read it for yourself. The other is when you want to benefit others, then you write. because what you write doesn't just benefit you, it benefits others. right? And this pen is so ennobled. Allah made it a means by which knowledge is delivered, and it's so powerful that Allah even swore by it, "Noon, Noon, and I swear by the pen and what they write, the pen and what they write then this qalam is also the means by which Allah actually preserved His revelation. So, kiraman Katibin, yālamoona ma tafālun. On our sides there are angels that are writing, kiraman barara, the, the angels that are in the company of the revelation, they are writing, kitab al-abrar, kitab al-fujjar, they're also written, kitab al-marqum, yashhaduhu al Right? So this idea of the pen being you know, incredibly powerful as a means of preserving, as a means of delivering knowledge. Is something that is in the in the alim al ghaib It's in the unseen and also in this world. Subhanallah. Just about knowledge itself. Just you know, a couple of a hadith before we go on. Uh, uh, one hadith, beautiful. من سلك طريقا يلتمس به علم سهل الله له طريقا إلى الجنة. Subhanallah. He says, uh, whoever takes up a path in which he's trying to acquire knowledge, Allah will facilitate for him a road to Jannah. So he's taking a road to knowledge and Allah is making for him easy the road to Jannah. May Allah make us from those people. Secondly, of course this hadith comes over and over again, but now you understand the spirit of it. The best of you are the ones who learn Qur'an and teach it. Learn Qur'an and teach it. Learning the Qur'an is a sunnah of the Prophet He's the first one who learned Qur'an. So when you're learning Qur'an, you are doing what the Messenger himself did wasallam. Teaching the Qur'an is not only a sunnah of the Prophet, it is the sunnah of Allah Himself. Quran, Allah, He taught the Qur'an, right? So imagine the power of learning, and then also teaching the Qur'an, and then you'll appreciate the beauty of these words, What more noble task can there be? That you're mimicking the activity, not just of the Messenger, but an act, an act of mercy given by Allah Himself. or He is the one who taught the exceedingly merciful, is the one who taught the Quran. Now, so the, by saying, some have actually deduced this, and this is uh, probably the last comment on this ayah. Some have deduced by the use of the word qalam in this ayah that Allah Azawajal already do, alluded to the fact that yes, He taught the human being the Quran, but the Quran will also be committed to the pen. It will also be documented. It won't just remain in speech. It will come back in the form of uh, written, in written form also. Subhanallah. So, علّم الإنسان ما لم يعلم, and this is there's a similar ayah in another surah. Allah says, وعلّمك ما لم تَكُنْ تعلم. علّم الإنسان ما لم يعلم means he taught the human being what he couldn't have known, what he did not know. Remember the three kinds of knowledge I told you about, right? There's knowledge of your senses, there's inferred knowledge, and there's knowledge of the heart, the unseen realm. So Allah gave knowledge which you couldn't have had on your own. Knowledge of the senses you can get on your own. Knowledge of inferred knowledge, some logic you can develop yourself. But this knowledge that was revealed on the heart of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi you could never have known that knowledge. You could never have had access to that knowledge. So he says, he taught the human being what he couldn't possibly have known, and it's referring to Revelation number 1. And specifically, who was the first student of this revelation? Yes, all of us today are, all Muslims are students of Revelation. But who's the first student of this Qur'an? It's Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi himself. First he's the student, then he's the teacher. So in another ayah, Allah says, you're the first student. So He says, وَعَلَّمَكَ مَا لَمْ He taught you what you yourself couldn't have known. So He puts the Messenger Himself in the position of being Allah's student. SubhanAllah. And this again, the idea of علم, قَلَم, اِقْرَأَ These are the last things associated with a man who doesn't read and write. This is part of the miracle of the passage. That Allah enlightened these people. And they became so enlightened, this ummah became so enlightened that Europe lost, you know, over, t- over centuries, Europe lost its intellectual civilization. They went into what is historically called the Dark Ages. And in their Dark Ages, you know what they had to do? They had to travel to the Muslim world. And they had to, tra- uh, you know, all their books of philosophy and, and uh, writers, their writers, uh, the writers of the Christian world of Europe, their books had been burnt in Europe by the Christians. But the Muslims had translated them and they were actually in the Muslim world. So Europeans, to learn their own history, had to go to the Muslim world and read about their own works in Arabic and translate them back. We became the people of the pen. We became where you come. We became the intellectual capital of the world. But on the one hand, that's so amazing. On the other, it's also pretty sad. Because today, you combine all the universities in the Muslim world, and there are less universities there than in the state of California. Okay? We have less universities in the Muslim world than... There's not even a fraction. There's, you know, a small country like France has more universities than all of our universities combined. And even what we have doesn't even compare in any way. Like the quality of education, the infrastructure, is no comparison. Where we were, where Allah put us, where we are now, subhanAllah. And so it's, not, you know, it's easy to gloat, look in the past and say, oh, We were awesome, man. We were so cool. And just live, live it up, right? And it's, it's, kind of, it's easy to forget the hideous present in which we are We have to do something about this This is the, the legacy of our ummah If we don't do something about this I can guarantee you our children won't And if they don't Forget it for the next two generations from now We have to think generations ahead We can't just think You know in this society They teach you how to think about yourself Make your five year financial plan Ten year plan What are your career goals Muslims don't think like this Muslims think generations ahead That's how we're supposed to think we, in the Muslim civilization, you'll have an old man. He's like 85 years old. He's about to die. He's about to die. He's still planting a seed in the ground for a tree. Right? And you're never going to see that tree. Why are you planting? Someday somebody will benefit. He's thinking of the future. Compare that to the society in which we live. It's it's a problem of the kuffar, of the non-Muslims. And it's also our own problem. These people live it up and just take on credit card debt. Do this, that, the other. Some of the most, you know, the richest people in this society. The, you know, the... Um, Donald Trumps of this society take this on a mortgage, take that on a mortgage, take that on a mortgage make the minimum payments, become a trillionaire, billionaire, whatever, right? But make the minimal payments He owes so much money, you know he's one of the richest people in the country but if he paid out all of his debts right now he'd be minus millions millions upon millions But what's the philosophy? The philosophy is pay the minimal live it up how long am I going to live? I'm going to live another 40 years, 50 years, whatever. Then I'll die. Then whatever I owed is not my problem, it's somebody else's problem. That's the idea. The idea is instead of leaving the future generation with something better, the idea is leave them with your problems. That's the idea. The entire healthcare debate in this country. The entire national deficit debate in this country. Somebody before figured, Somebody will later will deal with it. We don't have to deal with it. right? That's the philosophy. That's the mentality. Compare that to the mind of the Muslim. Allah Azza wa gave us how to think forward. And the first way forward is education. عَلَّمَ الْإِنسَانَ بِالْقَلَمْ عَلَّمَ الْإِنسَانَ مَا لَمْ يَعْلَمْ What he could not have known. He taught the human being what he could not have known. So these first five ayat are considered the first revelation given to the Messenger. Sallallahu The other narrations of the first revelations Are Suratul Al-Muddathir Surah Al-Muddathir fatiha But they, they, it can be reconciled Surah al is the first revelation After the Fatrah Meaning you know, when this revelation came There was a long period in which there was no revelation And then Surah al came So it's the first revelation after the gap That's how that's the first revelation Fatiha is the first revelation correctly Because it's the first complete surah Surah Al-Muddathir, which is the first few ayat. Here also the revelation wasn't the whole surah, it was the first few ayat. But Fatiha, when it was revealed, it was all seven ayat all together as one surah. So the first complete surah revealed, yes, it is the Fatiha. So that's how you reconcile all these different narrations of what the uh, the first revelation was. As we go further, how much time, what time is uh, shot, by the way nowadays? Nine, so we got a little bit of time, inshallah. Okay. So, كَلَّا إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَيَطْغَى Now we're moving to the second passage. This surah has three passages. The first passage is over. Now we're moving to the second passage of three. And in this passage, it's something tied to the previous surah. In the previous surah, Allah said the human being is the lowest of the low. And I gave you the observation a person can make about the human being. That they are morally just completely bankrupt. People are just corrupt. That's why they do the kinds of horrible things they do. On the inside, they have no goodness in them. We talked about the... the, the evaluation of human psyche by Freud, right? And what, kinds of, uh, philosophy, what kind of philosophy he presented for the human being. But now we're going to see on the practical side, an observation by Allah himself. No, not at all. Kalla. Kalla means حقا. For sure. That's one meaning of Kalla. For sure. Another meaning of Kalla is Allah. Uh, is you had better know that this is a, uh, you had better know, you had better realize. Another meaning of كَلَّا uh, رَوْعٌ لِمَنْ كَفَرَ بِنِعْمَةِ اللَّهِ بِتُغْيَانِهِ وَإِنْ لَمْ يَذْكُرْ الْكَلَامِ عَلَيْهِ رَوْعٌ means It's a means of yelling at someone because they were ungrateful to the favor of Allah. What is the favor of Allah in the previous ayat? Revelation and knowledge. So the one who refused this knowledge, Allah is yelling at him by saying كَلَّا And then he's making a general observation سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَىٰ إِنَّ الْإِنسَ no doubt the human being for sure continues to rebel. The word طُغْيَان in Arabic is an interesting word. It doesn't just mean to rebel. It means that you, you know what your limits are, and you make it a point to cross those limits. It's also used for water. al-ma." You know when there's a crazy flood? You know there's one thing the water spilled over. But the water just completely came out of the pot. That's al الْمَاء إِنَّا لَمَّا طَغَى الْمَاءُ hamalnahum fil الْجَارِيَةِ so that's the very strong language about excessive, you know, unheard of kinds of rebellion. Insane amount of rebellion. And that's the word Allah uses for the human being. On the one hand, Allah taught him what he couldn't have known. On the one hand, Allah taught the human being with the pen. And Allah is most gracious. He created him in the best possible fashion. But the reality of the human being, despite all of those honors that Allah gave him, he rebels. He rebels. He has no sense of authority over him. You know, this word is contrast with the word rabb Rabb is already an authority over you, but a, طاغي, a, طاغي, someone who doesn't accept any authority, anarchy. He doesn't want any authority over him. In, this is the attitude of the human being in regards to uh, revelation. Now this ayah is actually a really good insight about a few things I want to share with you. Number one, it's an insight into why people actually don't accept Islam. Why don't they not accept Islam? On the surface, they will tell you, I don't know if the Quran was actually compiled or not properly. Or they'll tell you, what about this hadith or that ayah or this and that. They'll give you kind of, what seems like intellectual reasons. That's why they're not accepting Islam. And even Muslims sometimes, they're not following Islam when you tell them why. They'll give you all kinds of intellectual reasons, right? But the reality is, Allah has read them on the inside. The reality is, they really love to rebel. They don't want to stay in any limits. They don't want anybody putting any limits on them. Not even Allah. They want to live free. And so Allah says كَلَّا innal insana لَيَطْغَى And you know the the ultimate result of ignorance is rebellion. Ignorance leads to rebellion. The, the previous ayat were about fighting ignorance. Read. Read. Among just last not even talk about non Muslims. Among Muslims, who are the most rebellious Muslims? Who are the most rebellious Muslims? The ones who don't read. The ones who don't study the religion. The ones who don't know and don't care to know. They don't know, and they don't care to know. They're going—obviously, they're going to rebel, right? And they, you have, so thats the internal problem of rebellion. That's not going to be fixed by any discussion. They have to change that inside of them, right? So, in the insan then Allah tells us what made him that way. What made a human being such a rebel? That was the first insight, right? That the human being—the real re- reason for rejection—is this arrogant rebellion. But where did this rebe- rebellion come from? Arra al which is really originally. Li arra This idea, you know, to understand it, the, the raw meaning is that he assumes that he's free of need. The human being sees himself as free of need. That's the raw meaning. So he rebels because he thinks he doesn't need anyone. He sees himself in not need of anyone in, in no need of anyone. What does that mean? In simple terms. Allah says Fa Al وَتَقْوَاهَا Allah gave the human being, inspired him with the recognition of what is evil and what is good. How, what's, what's wrong and what's right? When a, when a person does something bad, they deep down inside know it's bad. They already know it's bad, right? But why does someone do something bad? And not, let's not even talk about religious bad, legal bad, legal good and bad, right? Why do you stop at the red light? Because you think you're going to get a ticket if you cross it. There's going to be consequences. Why, do you th- why would you pay your taxes? Because you think the IRS will come after you if you don't pay your taxes. The idea is, you, you're not free of need. People have some control over you, you're not completely independent. If you were totally independent, you wouldn't care about anybody but yourself. And you wouldn't follow any rules. That's the assumption. For the, for the lower, for good human beings will still be good. But most people will go under, will have complete chaos if there's no control over them. If they think they're free of need. The fact that you, you know, don't spend on certain useless things, is because you don't have enough money. But if you had an endless supply of money, would you start spending on useless things? I could use that too, use this too, use this too. Because you wouldn't care anymore. You'd become carefree. So Allah says the real cause, the root cause of rebellion, the attitude of rebelling consistently, someone sees themselves that they don't need anyone. They're free of need. They're not dependent on Allah. Does he see himself free of need? He assumes about himself that he doesn't need anyone else. This came up previously in the same surah, in, in, in the same juz' Allah Azza wa says وَأَمَّا مَنْ بَخِلَى وَاسْتَغْنَى وَكَذَّبَ بِالْحُسْنَى لِلْعُسْرَةِ Same thing, he was cheap And then he was he felt like he's free of need the, uh, A very beautiful comment made here by Al Shaarawi, rahimahullah It's very interesting He says in this world there are two kinds of laws Physical and moral laws Physical laws and moral laws physical laws of gravity is going to pull you down that's a physical law fire is going to burn that's a physical law physical laws you don't try to rebel against them because they're always operational but moral laws are inside your heart and when you rebel against them like if you lie there's no lightning that strikes on your tongue and when you steal your hand doesn't fall off right and when you when you when you strike you know you don't become impaired the punishment doesn't come right away So physical laws people respect But moral laws people take advantage of This is what people take advantage of And it's breaking these moral laws And you don't see any punishment coming You figure, I'm free There there are no consequences for doing what I'm doing When you break, or you try to break physical laws You pay the price right away Right, the highway says There's a sharp turn coming Slow down, you don't want to slow down You'll pay the price Because you tried to break a physical law but when it comes to moral law, you figure I've got all the rain in the world. There's not going to be any consequences. Well, the one who created the physical laws also created the moral laws. And the one who is giving you punishment for breaking the physical laws right away is also the one who can delay giving you punishment for breaking the moral laws. It's the same source. All the restrictions on the human being, be they physical or moral, come from Allah. They come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Just an example of that, Allah says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَأْكُلُونَ أَمْوَالَ الْيَتَامَةِ ظُلْمًا إِنَّمَا يَأْكُلُونَ فِي بُطُونِهِمْ Those who eat the wealth of the orphan wrongfully, they're, they're filling their stomachs with fire. They're eating and they're filling their stomachs with fire. Well, when you eat the wealth of an orphan, try it, it's not gonna burn. It's not gonna burn. Not yet. Right? That you're breaking that moral law, but you'll pay for it later on. Not now. So because of that later on, the human being figures, it's all good. I'm free to go and so what's the remedy of that? what's the remedy of a criminal society? who becomes morally criminal? In this society, we, most of us, we abide by the law the speed limit, tax, whatever basic laws, right? but moral laws when will people actually become moral? when will heinous kinds of crimes stop? how do you pe- keep a society from becoming excessively shameless and lewd and vulgar how do you stop those kinds of laws? or those kinds of violations? how do you stop them? The solution is in the next ayah, Inna ilā No doubt, it is only to your master that the ultimate return will take place. Until you believe there's an akhirah, until you believe you will pay for everything you did, even the one, things you think you got away with, until you're convinced of that, you will not change morally. You will not change morally. You know, there are two kinds of people. There are people, the average people, they need to have laws, they need rules to follow. Otherwise, they will go crazy. Then there are higher, like, you know, more uh, people with higher sensibilities. People that are at a higher level of morality. Those are the kinds of people, they're not, they don't do good because they want to go to Jannah or they're afraid of hellfire. They do good because they want to please Allah. That's a higher goal. But most people aren't at that level. Don't think, don't assume about yourself that you're at this high level. Assume about yourself, you need to get away from hellfire. This is, you know, Understand that about yourself That we are at a certain level Where we need to Think of the consequences first If you mature yourself In your good deeds Then eventually yes You will do things For the pleasure of Allah But in the beginning It's really not because You're seeking You know the pleasure of Allah You don't care about anything else It's because if you do bad There will be consequences So إِنَّ إِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ الرُّجَعَ Covers all of that The one who doesn't want to disappoint Allah He'll be returned to Allah He doesn't want to stand before Allah Having done humiliating things a simple example before we go on, if you do something terrible, and your mother finds out, right, you, you did something humiliating, and it was caught on tape, and your mother is watching the video, how embarrassed would you be? Right? You would, you would stop doing whatever it was, because it was so humiliating, even though you're really tempted to do it, because it was so embarrassing, that a loved one saw it. When someone develops a love for Allah, جل, then they realize, what, this humiliating thing I'm doing, Allah is watching right and they developed a sense of shame how can i do this when allah is watching same way you wouldn't do certain things when your parents are watching you wouldn't do some th- some certain things when your husband's watching or when your, you know your 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 brother's watching your sister's watching when people are watching you wouldn't do certain things you'd become conscious you'd develop that kind kind of consciousness about allah but before that a consciousness of the hereafter yes to your master is the return which also implies punishment and reward subhanallah now we come to the ayat about Abu Jahl specifically. And in these ayat they're, they're amazing, amazing ayat. I'm gonna give you a couple of the gist of a couple of narrations, then we'll get into the ayat themselves. Abu Jahl is different from three, two other kufar in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ that are highlighted in the Quran. Three celebrity enemies of the Prophet ﷺ are highlighted in the Quran. Who are these three? There's Abu Lahab, there's Walid ibn Muhira, and then there's abu jahl these three people are highlighted over others you could think of them as the three big main enemies okay of these three there are some differences between them abu jahl would probably have to be considered the most noble of these enemies even though he's a wretched wicked enemy of islam of these three he would be probably by arab standards the most noble abu lahab was known to be a coward even at the battle of badr he didn't go himself he hired a couple of soldiers to go fight on his behalf <laughs> Abu Jahl went himself and fought, and got killed. Right, And even when he was getting killed, he was like a man about it. He was like, yeah, cut my neck down here, so when they see my severed head, it's a little higher, so they know there was a tribal leader who got killed. <laughs> so, you know, he, he was like, he's a lot of chivalry in him. He was very generous. Abu Lahab was very cheap. He was very cheap. So it's different, like their personalities are very different. The other thing about Abu Jahl, that's interesting, and in between is kind of Walid bin Mughira. He's not exactly a noble guy. He's more of a strategist. And he's not the enemy of Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم first. He's thinking, man, let's just make reconciliation. What he has to say is pretty impressive, but let's just make him compromise. Walid bin Mukhira, his, his discourse occurs in Surah Al-Qalam and also in Surah Al-Muddafir. Thumma nazar, thumma abasa wa basar, thumma adbara wa stakbar. Abu Lahab, there's a whole surah dedicated to him. Tabbat yada Abi Lahab bin Right? Now we're getting to the discourse on Abu Jahl. The reason I highlighted him, Abu Jahl, is a certain kind of personality I want to share with you. You know the famous dua of the Prophet wasallam, where he asked for one of the two Umars, Umar and Amr. Amr ibn Khattab and Amr ibn Hisham, which is this Abu Jahl. Which means the Messenger wasallam saw something in Abu Jahl that was worth saving. There was something about this guy. If he had accepted Islam, he would have been an amazing asset of Islam. And the hadith, the wording of the hadith is such it indicates If he had accepted Islam, he could have been another Umar You know what Umar is in Islam? He could have been that He had that kind of potential I, I say all of this to you Because I want to remind you of two ayat in the previous surah لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي أَحْسَنِ تقوين ثُمَّ رَدَدْنَاهُ أَسْفَلَ سافري. We created the human being in the best possible fashion Then we rejected him, reducing him to the lowest of the low. Was Abu Jahl created in the best possible fashion? Was his potential so good that even the Prophet made dua that he might become Muslim potentially? Did he have the potential? Yes. But did he live up to that potential or did he reduce himself to the lowest of the low? He reduced himself. He reduced himself. So one Umar accepted Islam, the other Umar did not accept Islam, right? And so this, the general concept was given in Surah At-Teen, now the practical example is being given. There there was, إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مَا Amana آمن أَبُوْ جَهْلِ He didn't come to believe. Now, why, what was his problem? He actually even liked the Messenger's message, صلى الله عليه وسلم. You know that? He liked it. He liked Quran. He was actually addicted to it. In one narration, he and Akhnas ibn Shuraiq, and Abu Sufyan before he had become Muslim, they went to the apartment of the Messenger, SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam, early Sirah. They, they're not together. They went separately. And they went sneaking, and they put their ears to the apartment of the Messenger, SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam, listening to Quran, because they were addicted to it. And they're sneaking back home, and they're all on different walls, right? So they run into each other. So one of them's like, what are you doing here? They he goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> right? So they're kind of caught each other in the act. And they said, well, Wallahi, we're never going to come back. They all knew why they were there. Wallahi, we won't come back. Next night they caught each other again. Next night they caught each other again. <laughs> then they said, this has to stop. If the youth find out, we'll lose all our credibility. Because during the day, what do they tell the youth? Don't listen to that crazy man. We are your elders, we know better. This word is just magic, don't listen to it. And at night time, they're listening to it. So, Abus, Akhlas ibn shuraiq he goes to Abu Sufyan. He says, we stop listening, but whatever you've heard so far, what do you think? He goes, it's the truth. Abu Sufyan says to Abu Jahal, Abu Abu, Akhans ibn it's the truth. He goes, go let's talk Go talk to Abu Jahal. So they go talk to Abu Jahal, what do you think? This is by the way in Sirat ibn Ishaq, this entire narration, I'm giving you the gist of it. So they go to Abu Jahal, what do you think? He goes, of course it's the truth. <laughs> Abu Jahal says, of course it's the truth. How come he didn't accept? He gave a reason, he said, look... We're, we're Banu Amir, they're Banu Hashim He was from Banu Amir And the messenger's from Banu Hashim He says whenever they fight we, fight we fight equal When they're generous, we're equally generous When they're good, we're equally good Now one of their people has these words We will never get words like this If we accept him as a messenger Our tribe, Banu Amr, loses forever We've lost Every time, we compete in everything We can't compete with these words So accepting him will mean Banu Amr loses forever I can't accept that he was a noble guy, he was a smart guy, smart enough to know this is the truth, he was brave in battle, a lot of good qualities, a lot of Umar ibn al-Khattab qualities even. What was the thing that destroyed him? Arrogance. It was arrogance. So I want to compare, just so we understand, this is a very subtle matter. What is the difference between Umar ibn al-Khattab عنه, before Islam and Abu Jahl? After all, when the Prophet made dua وسلم, he made dua for both of them, right? one of them so he saw kind of equal potential in both of them so what's different about them? we should understand this what is it that blessed Umar? Radiallahu anhu? the difference essentially is between taking pride in your nation taking pride in your tribe as opposed to having ego for yourself Umar bin al-Khattab was very proud of his nation too he had a lot of asabiyyah before Islam, he did that's before Islam but Abu Jahl not only did he have that, what else did he have? ego, his own ego, his own leadership. Now the thing is, the nationalism and tribalism, Islam can get that out of your system. Islam can remove that from your system. But ego is something you have to work on yourself. Ego is something you have to re- remove yourself. It's a bigger obstacle. He was not able to come over, get over his takabur, his, his istikbar, his, seek, his seeking of greatness for himself. So Allah عز و جل describes his activities now that he rejected the message even though he knows it's the truth we find several incidents of how he hurt the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam you should know of a couple at least he's sitting at the haram with his cronies There's a bunch of gang that used to hang out with him they're sitting there the messenger وسلم, was commanded to make salah so he's making salah at the haram he sees the rasul sallallahu and he says oh that other place there was a camel slaughtered not too early this morning the skin is still sitting there Who's gonna go? One of his guys was a Who's gonna go get that skin? Put it on this guy. Put it on Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. gets up, I'll do it. He was the he was like the, the real thug among them. So he goes, grabs the huge skin of the camel with all the filth on it. He waits for the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi to go into sajda. Throws it on top of it. It's so heavy he can't even get up from sajda Sallallahu Alaihi Now uh, we find this narration, uh, uh, Abdullah bin Salam, Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhu narrates. And he says, I was so scared I couldn't go and say Because they were going to kill me if I went So the word got out The word got out And Aisha, actually Fatima radiallahu ta'ala, came running Six, seven years old She was a little girl at the time She came and she removed this filth From the messenger And there were about seven of them And when the messengers The, the filth was removed the, the Rasulullah wa made dua Allahumma alayka bi Quraysh Oh Allah, deal with Quraysh it is on you to deal with Quraysh. And then he named them by name. Deal with him, deal with him, deal with him, deal with him, deal with him. And those were the exact seven people who were executed at Badr. Those were the people who were most brutally executed at Badr. Allah Azza wa avenged his messenger, alayhi not right away, but at the occasion of Badr. Anyhow, this is one occasion. Another occasion he tells Uqba, go when, he's standing, when the messenger is standing in Qiyam, take the shawl, this like scarf thing, wrap it around his neck and start choking him. They tried this on the Messenger ﷺ. Another time he sees the Messenger making Salah ﷺ, Abu Jahl comes up to him and says, if I see you praying like this again, I will step on your neck and crush it. He threatens the Messenger that he'll beat him down and crush his neck, step on his neck. He said this in front of all his gangs. You know, he's macho, he's showing off. A few days later, the Messenger ﷺ came and made Salah again. And he's sitting there, he can't just sit there and take it. Because if he takes it, every, all his gang members are going to say, "Ah, oh, what are you scared? You told them he's gonna cru- you're going to crush his neck, what happened? Right? So he has to go after him. So he gets up, he tries to go towards the Messenger say, to attack him. And then his friends, they see him running back and he's doing this with his hands, he's like pushing something back with his hands. And he's running backwards. And they asked him, what happened? What, what are you doing? And he says, as soon as I got close, There was this ditch full of fire, and there was this, you know, terrifying creature about to grab me, and I moved back. I moved back. This is the background I want to share with you before we get into these ayat. Do you see the one who forbids? And Allah is saying to His messenger, "Did you see the one who forbids?" Meaning forbids him from praying. Did you see the one who dares to forbid a slave, a magnificent slave of Allah? Abd is used in the Quran for the Messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, in every occasion where he has been honored. Every occasion where the Messenger has been honored, the word abd occurs. Subhanallah, الَّذِي asrabi بِعَبْدِهِ Alhamdulillah, the الذي أنزل على Abd عبد is an honorable term for the Messenger, the slave of Allah Azza the noble slave of Allah. He dares to forbid a slave of Allah, إِذَا صَلَّى When he goes to pray. So now previous ayat were he doesn't need it, he doesn't fear any consequence, right? You know, there's كَلَّا إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَيَطْغَى أَرَّآهُ right? And he doesn't think he's gonna return to his master. So now what does he do? There's not gonna be any consequence. I can attack this man when he prays. أَرَأَيْتَ الَّذِي يَنْهَى عَبْدًا إِذَا صلى. So we find Allah, Lucy says, إِنَّ الْعَبْدَ Jahl. That the, the one praying is the Messenger of Allah And the one forbidding is Abu Jahl, the cursed رأيت إن كان على alhuda, Amazing ayah Now you'll appreciate this ayah Allah says, don't you see And رأة is different from basara and other words in Arabic You know how you say when you, when you understand a very difficult problem You say, I see which In the meaning of I understand You understand? It's not just I see literally But I also understand Or I see where this is going Right? I see where the community is headed. That doesn't mean you physically see, but you can perceive the consequences, right? Allah Azza wa Jalla says, رأيت in كان 'ala al-huda?" Did you see if he had been committed to guidance? He's telling the messenger, "Did you see? Would you did you realize if that guy, that Abu Jahl, if he became committed to guidance, how what an amazing person he would have become?" And is this something the messenger already saw, sallallahu alaihi wasallam? He already saw it because he made the du'a, right? He said, "Give me one of two what? Amr, one of two Amr." So Allah says, "Don't you see the potential?" "Araita ala Huda? Didn't you see? Had he been committed to guidance, and then you know, to be on guidance, who does that help? Yourself. When you're committed to guidance, it helps yourself. Ala to be committed to Allah it. upon it to be committed to it. So to be committed to guidance yourself. But then there's another thing. It's not just you are committed yourself like Umar ibn al-Khattab. First, he committed to guidance himself. But then what? He didn't just keep the guidance to himself. He commanded other people to taqwa too. What's the next ayah? amara bit taqwa, Or he even commanded to taqwa. Not only did he take the guidance on for himself, he became a means by which he was delivering the guidance and taqwa to others. He commanded others to fear Allah. Didn't you see that potential in him? This is actually an elaboration of the Prophet's own supplication in regards to Abu Jahl and the amazing potential this poor fellow had. This guy, the cursed of the cursed, this la'een, as the Mufassirun call him, this cursed fella, he had potential like Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. Had he only realized that potential. Allah created him fi ahsani taqlim. He chose to be as safideen. He chose that. He chose that for himself. So, أرايت إن كان على هدى أو أمر بالتقوى did you then see if he, choo- if he chose to lie against tr- lie against you and lie against the truth and turn back, turn away. In other words, you know if, if he had turned good, did, can't you see the good that would have come with it? But if he has turned bad, do you see the harm that will come of it? Don't you see the destruction he will bring upon himself? The Messenger is being depicted with the words, to show us that the Messenger has amazing foresight. He can see the benefit and the harm of things. He can analyze things in a deep way to see their long term consequences. And we're being taught to think like that. We're being taught to think, do this good thing, can you see what good it will bring in the future? If you don't do this right, if this guy continues the way, can you see the harm he's gonna land himself in? So أَرَأَيْتَ إِن wa وَتَوَلَّى And then, the, when, he, when he turned away, you remember the, this amazing contrast Does he see himself that he doesn't need anyone? On the other hand On the other hand Allah says yalam bi anna Allah يَرَى Doesn't he know that Allah saw? That it is Allah who was actually watching? That Allah himself saw? Sees? Why is this important to mention here? He thinks he is violating the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam That's what he thinks But even he believed in Allah Even most mushrikun had some concept of Allah this guy is so far gone he the, the thought that maybe allah is watching that allah sees what he's doing that didn't occur to him ya'lam anna and this is the attitude of someone when they become such a you know deviant criminal you you know when a when a criminal is about to attack an innocent victim they will say for god's sake god is watching they call on god but for a criminal even that's not much right that even that that shahada is not enough god is watching that's not enough for them right if there's any ounce of good in them you call on allah look allah is watching like you know when uh, maryam salamun alayha was visited by the angel she got scared but maybe this guy has some ounce of good in him so what does she say i seek refuge of al rahman from you she called on allah so she reminded him of allah if you have any taqwa huh? right but this guy has it hasn't even occurred to him that allah azza wa jalla sees أَلَمْ تَعْلَمْ بأ... ألم يعلم بِأَنَّ اللَّهَ يَرَى، because we're out of time I'm gonna uh, stop the verse of the surah here you know the rest the, the, the third part is the third passage of the surah but here I want to share something very important with you what is the relationship between knowledge which was the first passage and the arrogant kafir which is the second passage isn't that what it is the first passage was إِقْرَأ بِسْمِ رَبِّكَ الَّذِي خَلَقَ خَلَقَ الْإِنْسَانَ مِن عَلَقٍ إِقْرَأ وَرَبُّكَ الْأَكْرَمُ الَّذِي عَلَّمَ بِالْقَلْمِ عَلَّمَ الْإِنسَانَ مَا لَمْ يعلم. All knowledge, knowledge, learning, teaching. قَلَمْ، اِقْرَأْ، علم, All these words. But then we turn all of a sudden to this ignorant, arrogant, rebellious person. And really the source problem as we learned already is rebellion. Is rebellion. What's the connection between two, these two things? The first thing that you have to note about that, inshallah ta'ala, is that knowledge in and of itself is supposed to be a means of humility. Knowledge is a means of humility. <laughs> said He gave the example of someone who has knowledge. He said, when a tree bears fruit, its branches come down. The idea being, when you have a lot of knowledge, it's like you're bearing fruit. But what happens to your branches? They humble themselves. The more knowledge you have, the more humble you should be. إِنَّمَا Allah <laughs> اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ ulama, Who truly fears Allah? Who becomes most humble before Allah? Those who have true knowledge. Those who have real knowledge. So on the one hand, you have knowledge, but it should lead you to humility. The lack of that knowledge, or the rejection of that knowledge, will lead you to what naturally then? Arrogance. It will lead you to arrogance. And it's amazing. You're humbling yourself before Allah, but Allah is increasing you in darajat. In but when you try to increase your own status, and show arrogance, Allah brings you down. <laughs> it's the contrast, right? You're trying, to come, you're trying to come down before Allah, Allah elevates you Himself. You come up, you try to come up before Allah show your arrogance and Allah brings you down. SubhanAllah. That's the contrast we're learning in these ayat. Between ilm and this takabur. Ilm and humility. That's really a profound connection between these two things. And then finally, his ignorance is highlighted in the words, alam ya'lam. In the beginning, allam al-insan. He taught the human being. Twice he taught the human being. But here, this guy, what's the source of his problem? He doesn't even know. alam ya'lam. Doesn't he know? Rhetorically, even he has no end. He has no end. Alam yalam bi an Allah yara. May Allah Azza wa Jal give us a correct understanding of His book and the Sunnah of His Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam. We're going to have to finish the dars on this surah uh, next week because I think there's a halaqa by Shaykh Hassan right after Isha prayer. So with this, we conclude. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Allah ilaha illa Anta. nastaghfiruka wa natabulika. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh